Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Josh Nygren. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Nancy Langston, a distinguished professor of environmental history at Michigan Technological University and author of several books in the field of environmental history. Today, we'll be talking about her latest book, Sustaining Lake Superior, An Extraordinary Lake in a Changing World, which was published in 2017 by Yale University Press. Nancy Langston, Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Josh. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. I wonder if we might begin uh, by just telling telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I am now in Eugene, Oregon, at University of Oregon on a Mellon Foundation Fellowship, and I have lived all over the world. I moved to Michigan Tech about six years ago because I fell in love with the Lake Superior Basin and wanted mm-hmm. to be close to the communities where I work. But before that, I spent 18 years at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I did my PhD in ecology and environmental studies. Mm. And at the end of my PhD, after working in Zimbabwe for a couple years, I switched to environmental history, combining geography, ecology, and history. And I've been an environmental history historian ever since. Great, great. Um, yeah, one of the things that emerges early on in uh, in sustain, sustaining Lake Superior is really your personal connection to this place. So I'm wondering, um, could you tell a little bit more about how you became interested in the issues you explore from ecological change to toxicity, both in the Lake Superior and really this place's connections to things at the global scale? Sure. Um Oh, 18, no, boy, 25 years ago, I moved from the Pacific Northwest to my first academic job at UW-Madison. And the Midwest is an extraordinary place in many ways, but I really missed the water and the mountains and the rocky coastline. I was sort of heartbroken for a while in the Midwest, much as I loved Madison. And at one point in my first couple of years, I went up to Lake Superior just for a visit on a stormy winter week and fell in love with the lake and fell in love with the intensity of the storms and the sense of winter and the sense of being on a vast rocky ocean. Hmm. And at that point, I thought, well, I want to do a project up here. And most of my books have been based on a place that I fall in love with. And I think, well, how do I get to spend more time here? Write a book about it. So a number of years went by and I was working on my third book, um, Toxic Bodies, which was my only book that's not place-based. The place was the body. It was about Mm -hmm. endocrine disrupting chemicals. And I started working on a chapter on toxaphene, a toxic chemical that was showing up in lake trout and also in people. And it was a real puzzle because while most other persistent organic pollutants levels were dropping pretty quickly after banning the chemicals. Mm -hmm. Toxaphene was different. Its levels were rising, and particularly in Lake Superior. And it was a puzzle because the chemical had never been produced in the area. It's a cotton 
um, pesticide. So it wasn't ever sprayed on cotton in the Lake Superior Basin because Lake Superior is awfully cold. Mm -hmm. So I started, I thought that was just going to be a few pages in my Toxic Bodies book. And all of a sudden I had 90 pages of a draft (laughs) about Toxaphene and Lake Superior. And I thought, okay. And my editor agreed, this has to come out of that. So I pulled it out and thought, okay, my next book is going to be about toxics and watersheds and change in Lake Superior. And so when I finished Toxic Bodies, I turned back to Lake Superior trying to think about what kinds of changes and environmental pressures and human cultural changes were happening in this enormous northern lake that I could write about and try and understand. Excellent, excellent. So could you tell listeners, for those of you uh, uh, listeners who haven't visited Lake Superior or don't know much about it, could you tell us a little bit about this body of water? What qualities make it so unique, so special, and often misunderstood? Sure. It's the most extraordinary body of water on Earth, I have to say. It's an easy place to fall in love with. And the the tribes, when they came here, the European colonists and settlers and explorers, I think were all captured by the sense of a lake so big. It's the largest lake by surface area in the world. It creates its own weather. It was always called the Sweetwater Seas because it's essentially an ocean with enormous waves. It's the coldest lake in the world, average 39 degrees um, Fahrenheit, which may not sound that cold, but that's extraordinarily cold. And now it's the most rapidly warming large lake in the world. So it's it's the most distant and remote and seemingly pristine of all the Great Lakes, people tend to think. Mm-hmm. So what I was really fascinated with is how this such a distant northern cold lake ended up at the nexus of some of the world's most rapid changes now with climate change. And so I became interested in it because it's such an extraordinarily beautiful seemingly pristine lake, but it's also a place um, that's deeply connected to global changes in toxics and industrial pollution and now in climate change. Hmm. So so early on in the book, you introduce uh, a couple of ideas that in a way took me, having read environmental history, a bit by surprise, uh, but then quickly convinced me. And those ideas are first that this phrase, the solution to pollution is dilution. And secondly, uh, the notion of assimilative capacity. Uh, Could you explain those concepts briefly and kind of why you see them as something more, at least initially, than uh, I think, as you say, an apology for industrial pollution? Sure, sure. First, I want to give a tiny bit of background um, that I should have said before. But when people come to Lake Superior, because it's still it's 90 some percent forested, there are no big industries on the lake. People look around and you see mountain lions and all sorts of bears and pileated woodpeckers and extraordinary fish populations. And they think this place is pristine. It's amazing. But the real story I found out about Lake Superior is that it's a lake in recovery that after World War II is probably the most rapidly industrializing large lake in the world. Mining, pulp mills, all sorts of industries were rapidly intensifying. And by the 1960s, people thought this lake was at a tipping point and might irreversibly collapse the way the other Great Lakes um, have done. 
And so what I got intrigued by was that Lake Superior has really recovered in my generation. You know, it was almost entirely deforested, the most rapidly deforested lake probably in the world. And now there are trees everywhere. You know, the wildlife, even deer were gone. And now you can hardly go 10 minutes without seeing a bear or deer or bald eagle. Many of the toxic sites have been at least partially cleaned up. Lake trout almost went extinct and they spawn abundantly. So this is really a place not of untouched beauty, Mm -hmm. but a place of resilience and recovery. And yet it's recovered so much, people don't realize that it had this history of near collapse. So what I was really intrigued by was how did we recreate this lake in our mind as untouched when I think what the really cool story is, is that we can do great harm to places, but we can also allow them to recover and help them to recover. So what I first wanted to know was, how did all these industries pollute the lake so quickly? Was nobody caring? Did people just say, oh, whatever, it's a big lake, dump whatever you want. And what I found out was as soon as industrial pollution intensified, people's concerns about that pollution immediately developed as well. Lots of people wrestled with the idea of how can we have development, industrial development, and yet not destroy this enormous commons of this extraordinary lake. And that was where the two ideas that you mentioned, the solution to pollution is dilution and assimilative capacity developed. And the first idea, solution to pollution is dilution, everyone's heard before, it's just that stuff may be toxic, but if you dilute it enough, it'll be fine. Mm And that's true for lots of natural pollutants, if you think about it. You know, one tiny drop of alcohol in, and, you know, in a body of water the size of a swimming pool isn't going to kill someone. But if you drink three quarts of, you know, 100% alcohol, you'll be dead pretty quickly, um, just as an example. Um, And so people thought, well, it's the biggest lake in the world. Sure. Well, you know, some of this stuff, arsenic, mercury, it's pretty toxic, but it's a big lake. It'll be fine. And the second idea was assimilative capacity. And this was a much more nuanced idea. And this idea was that pollution in healthy ecosystems, that healthy watersheds, in particular healthy forests, can break down pollutants. They can assimilate them and return these nat- these ecosystems to healthy states. Um, and I think that's a really provocative idea. And it became a very powerful idea among pollution regulators in trying to deal with new industries and figure out how much pulp mill waste can we dump into a stream, how much mining waste, how much pollution can a natural or humanized ecosystem assimilate before it begins to collapse. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have kind of made fun of these ideas and said, oh, they were just an excuse for dumping whatever you wanted to into a Mm -hmm. lake and ignoring problems. But I argue that they were much more than that, that in many ways those ideas were problematic. They failed at times. And I go into lots of detail about how industry often captured those ideas and captured regulators. Mm -hmm. But I think at their core, those ideas are powerful because they conceptualize people as part of larger ecosystems rather than a separate and incomplete control of them. I think their core idea is that humans are part of these broader natural ecosystems, part of larger natural processes, and we need to figure out how to live within natural limits. 
We didn't always do a good job at doing that, but I think that's an incredibly important, powerful idea. Mm -hmm, definitely. Now, you mentioned that, um, that these concepts were operative in certain contexts, but also that things, as you show in your book, begin to change, and they begin to change quite rapidly uh, starting in the 19th century. What are some of the ecological changes that are taking place that suddenly call those concepts and their uh, validity into question? When Europeans first invaded or arrived, they found themselves in a landscape that had been transformed for millennia by Native American and First Nations groups, and also by lots of other animal species, particularly beaver. And these were really beaver landscapes, beaver and forest landscapes, where beaver had created up to 20-some percent of these watersheds were beaver meadows and beaver ponds in various stages of transformation. And Native Americans had worked with these beaver, had fished, had modified these landscapes for millennia, but always within, within certain ecosystem limits. So they didn't destroy all the farce, they didn't kill out all the beaver, they didn't extirpate the lake trout or the wolves. And so when Europeans arrived, they saw this incredible abundance of riches, and they also saw that the landscape seemed pretty resilient, that you could dump some pollution and it seemed to break down very quickly. So two things were happening simultaneously. First, Europeans came and completely eradicated the forests. This was, as I said before, some of the most rapid deforestation in the world. This was the great cutover region. By the 1890s, between 1870s and 1890s, some 80 to 90% of, say, Wisconsin alone, its old growth forest was cut very, very quickly. And this was without chainsaws or tractors. It was just right. harvested super quickly. Um, and at the same time, beaver were being eradicated really quickly. And what people didn't realize was that beaver and forest together had helped create this assimilative capacity, mm -hmm. that it was basically the forests and the wetlands and the beaver meadows acted as enormous sponges where pollutants were being captured and broken down, where erosion was, you know, where big rainfalls were not sweeping massive amounts of dirt into the lake. And so when beaver were taken out of the system and the forests were logged, all of a sudden the landscape lost much of its assimilative capacity pretty quickly, right at the same time when industrial corporate capitalists were saying, let's build more mines, let's log more, let's you know, do more and more and more energy development. And so those two things happening simultaneously really transformed the watershed. Definitely. And so by the, about the turn of the 20th century, we have a fairly denuded landscape. Um, and one of the things I found fascinating in your book is how a variety of measures that were designed and built and promoted as ways to improve the environment actually backfired. And one of the early examples of this was the pulp and paper industry. Would you explain how this industry became, as you call it, the, the source of the region's greatest pollution problems? Sure. One of the things I realized when I first started doing this research in 2010, I spent about a month on the Canadian shore of Lake Superior using various archives, particularly of the um, pulp and paper companies, talking with a lot of different foresters, getting to know the northern half of the lake. 
And I had always assumed the entire lakes watershed was deforested very quickly, but it turned out it was the U.S. shore that was deforested so incredibly rapidly because it had white pine, which was an extraordinary lumber tree. It floated. It could be gotten to market very easily. It was super useful for lumber. On the Canadian shore, where it's much colder, much more of a boreal or near Arctic forest, uh, there they have what's known as um, firs, balsam firs, and spruce, and a host of other species. But it's essentially a boreal forest, which, with the exception of a few white pines right on the shore, was not really useful for lumber. So it had not been very rapidly developed until the 1920s. And so the Canadians looked south at what was happening on the U.S. side, and they saw U.S. lumber companies had just denuded the southern half of the watershed. And they said, whoa, we don't want this to happen to us. We're going to have controlled forestry, and we're going to focus on creating an industry that can basically prevent that kind of industrial collapse that happened on the U.S. side. We're going to focus on paper industry. We're going to build a paper industry to carefully regulate the forest and have a really slow, sustainable logging that helps develop this remote Canadian region for a white colonial settlement. Mm -hmm. And so the whole idea of the paper industry was to be an alternative to what had happened on the U.S. side of, you know, corporate lumbermen coming and cutting everything and getting out. But unfortunately, in transforming the North for paper, the Canadian foresters ended up replicating a whole set of mistakes um, in terms of doing very, very intensive logging and ending up in a situation where pollution from pulp mills became an enormous threat. And on the South Shore, on the U.S. side, after the big white pine and hemlocks were cut, the foresters on the south side also wanted to replace this, you know, collapsed lumber industry. They looked to Canada and said, hey, Canada's trying a pulp industry. Why don't we do something the same here? So the, the U.S. foresters also really encouraged on the south side Aspen to come in after the white pines had been logged, a kind of hardwood um, tree that's very, very good for certain kinds of paper manufacture, but doesn't have a lot of other kinds of biodiversity necessarily. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. foresters encouraged what really became a kind of monoculture to build an industry to replace the abandoned lumber industry. But that also created enormous pollution problems for the watershed. Right. A lot of those pollution problems, as you demonstrate, were um, kind of exacerbated by the management strategy that uh, provinces and states largely adopted, which um, uh, you call in your book uh, cooperative pragmatism. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that and how it factored into the strategy and then the effects of uh, some of the pollution problems? Sure. You know, when local citizens immediately began complaining about pollution from pulp mills and pollution from logging and mining, their governments didn't ignore them, but the governments were eager for economic development. At least the settler colonial governments were really eager for economic development. They wanted to build a white citizenry in this area. And so they partnered with scientists who believed that pollutants pretty much stayed in place and they could remain local concerns that you could manage with local agreements. 
So state and provincial experts decided that they were going to partner with industry, create cooperative, pragmatic partnerships, and focus on new technologies, adopting technologies that would contain pollution just enough to make the water safe to drink and to allow jobs and white communities to thrive. So they really thought they could do this, not with regulations that said, nope, you can't dump toxics into the watershed, but instead with cooperative agreements that would encourage new technologies that would limit some of the pollution under voluntary agreements. Basically, they wanted to have a lot of economic development without harming the basis of that development, the ecological basis of it. Right. And I think you do a really good job of showing how this cooperative pragmatism often leads to delay tactics and calls for more research, uh, techno fixes and things like that. And those really start to come uh, into play after World War II when, as you said earlier, industrial pollution really seems to ramp up uh, and toxic pollution uh, becomes much more of a problem, pervasive problem, uh, uh, increasingly mobile problem. And I found your discussion of that to follow somewhat of a similar arc where there's limited and often inadequate efforts to um, control pollution through state level, these voluntary means that you were describing, and then followed by the eventual onset of, of uh, regulation. But could you explain how, uh, how and why Lake Superior was and its watershed was doused with chemicals. Why did all these happen in the first place? And even with stricter regulations, why are these problems so persistent, harming and especially harming some groups more than others? Boy, there's lots of questions in yes, there, Josh. Sorry, They're all great <laughs> questions. Um, so an, a number of embedded questions. First, I spent a couple chapters comparing the Canadian attempt to deal with paper industry pollution and the U.S. attempt. And Canada and the U.S. were always battling with each other over tariffs and which companies would develop which forest resources. But what both sides of the shore agreed on was that when they had to figure out how to cooperate as two nations, that tariffs were not ultimately the solution. And they also needed to figure out how to cooperate on limits to use of the water, degradation of the water. Because I should clarify geographically, another thing that's great about Lake Superior is it's really a transnational lake. Mm -hmm. um, it's bordered by many Anishinaabeg nations and by US and Canada. Within Canada, it's all Ontario. Within US, it's three different states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And each of these different jurisdictions have, has a completely different set of responses to pollution. And so this jurisdictional complexity often made it really hard to figure out what to do with shared waters, right? Because, you know, Minnesota might say, hey, we want as much mining as possible. And Wisconsin might say, wait a minute, we don't want your pollution. It's mm. shared waters. And Ontario would say, we want to dump our own pollution, but we don't want your pollution, guys. And so these conflicts over whose pollution were, would be allowed in the lake, finally in 1909, the International Joint Commission was formed between U.S. and Canada and saying, we have to cooperate on trying to deal with pollution and use and withdrawals of our shared waters between not just the Great Lakes, but also the rivers that form some of the boundary between U.S. and Canada. So within that framework of trying to come up with new transnational agreements to manage water and to manage pollution, the states and provinces and countries and tribes 
had to figure out, well, how do we encourage um, development, particularly pulp and paper, an incredibly polluting industry, without destroying our shared waters? And so I go into some detail about these endless attempts, particularly of Wisconsin, to try and limit pollution into the lake. So briefly what was happening then was the paper industry would dump about 50% of the fibers from the trees would just become waste and they'd dump them right back into the water with a very um, concentrated set of toxics, sometimes natural toxics from the trees themselves that had become really concentrated. The lignans, which hold trees together and keep them from falling down, contain a whole set of chemicals, which when they're really diluted, don't hurt anything. But when they're really concentrated by a pulp factory and then dumped into the water, can cause an enormous amount of toxic pollution. That's that stink that you used to smell wherever there's a paper company. Um, and then just dumping all these finely ground fibers, the bacteria that start to break them down end up using up all the oxygen in the river, and then they're massive fish kills. So part of what the states were trying to figure out and hired a bunch of scientists was how much of this junk you could dump into the water and natural bacteria could break it down, could assimilate it without causing massive fish kills. Um, and so the more oxygen in the water with flowing rapids, it could break it down much more effectively because the bacteria need oxygen. Mm -hmm. So there were all these endless, there were property rights and assimilative capacity, property rights and pollution. Um, but at the same time, the companies were essentially ignoring all this and they would just dump massive, massive amounts. So starting in 1925 um, in Wisconsin, the State Railroad Commission of all groups mm -hmm. said, we are going to regulate this pollution if that pollution interferes with navigable waters. And basically, if you can imagine, there was so much crap in the lake, that in the water and in the rivers and in the lake that boats literally couldn't get through it. But the company said, yo, you don't have the right to do this. You know, there's no limits on corporate development. You know, the state has never given anybody the right to exercise power over corporations. Mm -hmm. But the Railroad Commission of Wisconsin plowed on, said we get to limit stream pollution from paper mills. And, but the Supreme Court, it wasn't really clear that you could really do this. And so finally there was a negotiated agreement that instead of actually limits to pollution, they would form conservation commissions and they would get together three times, four times a year and create these cooperative panels that the industry and the state regulators or the state commissioners would try and figure out how to cooperatively come up with a solution to pollution, um, which didn't affect industrial development. Mm -hmm. And the state sanitary engineers, that was what they used to call civil engineers, mm -hmm. were so frustrated because for 25 years, they tried to limit these paper companies dumping <laughs> waste into the lake. And each time the company said, well, we have to have some more research. We have to, you know, we have to have more science. We have to have more discussions, more technologies. So 25 years went on after this agreement before any pollution got limited. And so there are these endless reports of the sanitary engineers going, look, another 95% of the fish died. Look, another 500 letters of complaint. Mm -hmm. It just got worse and worse. So it became this classic case study of best intentions on the part of the regulators, limited regulatory capacity. The state wasn't clear it really wanted to let them limit corporate profits. Mm -hmm. 
and endless foot dragging. And the sad thing was, was, you know, the companies were wasting so much money by dumping half their fiber back into the stream. Mm. When finally the courts forced them to limit their waste, they immediately began making more profits. Um, But, you know, again, this is a classic issue in regulatory paralysis. Individual companies will say, well, we're not going to institute pollution controls if there are no strict, consistent regulations. Mm -hmm. And once those regulations are finally in place, there's a level playing field. Every company has to invest in new technologies. And fairly quickly, they make their investments back because they end up saving on natural resources. But if they'd had to do that without clear regulations, they would have been undercut in the first few years and lost market share. So it's just, it's a classic example of why regulations are so necessary that voluntary Mm. projects alone essentially just delay any kind of effective pollution control. Right. And uh, you, you start to introduce uh, in the aftermath of some of those regulations, once they are introduced, um, how these, even though the source, the lot of the dumping is curtailed, uh, a number of groups are still disproportionately harmed. Could you say a little bit about that? Absolutely. The Anishinaabeg or the Ojibwe um, tribes around the Lake Superior Basin have two really, really, really critical food security and also cultural continuity um, foods and relationships. And one of them is the relationship with lake trout, an enormous salmonid fish, a really big trout at the top of the food chain that grows to huge sizes, can supply, it's like salmon in the Pacific Northwest, just Mm -hmm. an incredible source of this abundance in the region, why so many tribes could live in such a cold, snowy place. Um, But these fish that's at the top of the food chain accumulate massive amounts of persistent toxics in the water. And the second key food and cultural relationship is with wild rice or manumen, the food that grows on water. The Anishinaabeg migrated to the region many, many, many generations ago, drawn by visions of manumen, the food that grows on water. But wild rice is very, very sensitive to sulfates and other toxics in the water. It needs clean water and healthy wetlands and healthy ecosystems. So the tribes, because they eat so much more fish for cultural and food security reasons have become very, very vulnerable to the toxics in that fish. Mm. Um, So for example, mercury bioaccumulates. So it gets more and more intense as it works its way up the food chain. And a study that was done a few years ago with the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency found that 10% of human babies born in the Lake Superior watershed had toxic levels of mercury at the moment of birth. Wow. They accumulated that from their parents during fetal development. So they, if they, if they were, basically they would be super fun sites if they weren't <laughs> babies. Um, and that's just so deeply unfair to right. everybody, to every loon, every fish, every wild animal in the basin and every human, but particularly to the Anishinaabeg because fishing is of such such importance for the tribe's culture, for their continuity with their histories in the basin, and also for plain old food security. Um, wild rice does not accumulate as many toxics, but it's very, very susceptible to mm. toxic burdens in the water. And so when wild rice beds become depleted and the wild rice stops growing, 
then the tribes face enormous challenges, both with cultural continuity and just with providing, you know, really important foods. Right. Yeah, I think that's a, a really important theme in this book is just the the questions, the, the issue, the challenges of environmental injustice, how a lot of these uh, communities are not experiencing these burdens proportionately. Um, we, you've explained quite a bit about the pollution that comes from the pulp and paper industry, and you've mentioned uh, how mining is also a contributor. I'm wondering if we could uh, switch and turn towards that because really your examination of the Reserve Mining Company in northern Minnesota offers such an ex- evocative example. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the company and why there was so much controversy surrounding it in the late 1940s, uh, especially over, over its plans to build a processing facility on the shores of Lake Superior? Sure. Um, one of the big stories in this book, one of the continued themes and continued stories has been the efforts of the tribes and First Nations within the basin to um, to transform the landscape, to to address these enormous persistent challenges. And so I try and really foreground the efforts of the tribes and the work of the tribes in the basin over many millennia. But um, the tribes are completely central right now in the struggles over how to deal with a mining boom. We're in the middle of an enormous mining boom um, within North America and particularly controlled often by Canadian companies, but also US companies within the Lake Superior Basin. There is a mining boom for uranium, for gold, for nickel, um, and also for a form of iron, a very low grade form of iron known as taconite. And so one of the things I look at in the book is the ways that the Anishinaabeg over many generations have um, have addressed the challenges from mm-hmm. mining, both the possible benefits, the jobs, the economic development, but also the potential harm to water, to fish, to their forests. And so one of the stories I tell is just a few years ago in 2011, um, a Wisconsin company wanted to build what would have been the largest open pit mine in the entire world. Mm -hmm. This would have been for a super low-grade form of iron known as taconite. This would have been in Wisconsin, just a few miles upstream of the Bad River Bands Reservation. So it was not on reservation lands, but it was on what's known as ceded territory. So Mm -hmm. when the tribes signed the 1842 treaty, they retained the right to hunt, fish, and gather within the territories that they had agreed not to claim for farming, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And so GTAC, the big company, owned by Chris Klein, the coal king, had basically said, oh, we're going to evade the tribal issues by locating just upstream of the tribe. The waters will go into tribal lands, but we'll just have to deal with the state, not with the tribe. Mm-hmm. But they were wrong because the tribe has treaty rights that it was super careful to retain right. when the treaties were signed. So at first, GTAC um, said, oh, we're going to follow all state environmental laws. We're not going to hurt any water. It's all going to be great. And taconite super safe, and it's all going to be fine. Um, And so I first learned about this effort when, with a group of people from UW-Madison, we visited with the Molek Sekogan to learn how they had blocked a big proposed Exxon gold nickel mine near Mm. the reservation in the 1990s. 
And while we're in this meeting, you know, learning about technical details of parts per million water pollution, all of a sudden about 15 people came into the room and they were off on the bad river band several hours upstream right on Lake Superior. And they came hours down, drove into this meeting with us, three hours drive to say, hey guys, you think this was an important issue several years ago. We are about to face the biggest open pit mine in the world just upstream of our reservation and nobody's paying attention. We need your help. Both UW-Madison, we need your help and Mole Lake Sokogan. And so the head of the tribe, the chairman of the tribe, Mike Wiggins Jr. came and talked to us about all the reasons they were so concerned about taconite. And he talked also about how incredibly important wild rice and the waters were to him personally, so he would give his life to protect that water. And then he said, well, everybody says taconite's safe. You know, it's just iron. It's not going to hurt anything. But what about reserve mine? So that moment, listening to Mike and a whole host of other people from the band, it really changed my life because wow. it made me decide to move up there. It made me realize this water is so important. Wild rice is so important to people. They would give their lives to protect this. Um, and so I tried to learn more from the tribe about why they were so concerned. And the answer was reserve mine that you asked a few yeah. minutes ago. What about reserve? <laughs> And reserve mine was so important because it was the first of the big taconite mines, the first taconite mine period in the Lake Superior Basin. And it was right after World War II. And this company, Reserve Mining Company, which was sort of made up of two really big former minor mining companies, they went to the state of Minnesota and they said, hey, we want to create this enormous open pit taconite mine. And we want to dump the waste, about 90, about 70% of it would be waste tailings, um, and dump that right into Lake Superior. And we think this is a good idea because it would be way too expensive for us to build a tailing storage facility on the land. Mm -hmm. um, and we think this is a good idea for Minnesota because it's going to protect the water. It's all natural. We're just grinding up natural rock and dumping it into the lake. And the lake is so huge, a little bit of waste can't possibly hurt it. So this sort of set the stages of a debate in 1947. And Minnesota's Conservation Commission had to figure out, is this a good idea or is this a bad right. idea? You know, basically, northern Minnesota was becoming similar to Appalachia at the time. The mine, the former mining jobs had shut down. The war had been really hard on the region. The U.S. thought it was running out of iron. So there was a big pressure to create jobs, to create new sources of iron. But taconite, which was this new source of iron, is just super low value. So processing it is very energy intensive, and it creates this massive amount of waste. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, Minnesota had to struggle with a really big question. Do we want a new industry for the basin now that our other mines are shutting down? How are we going to deal with the waste? What are the national security issues? President Eisenhower's team was saying, yes, do this. We need more iron now to fight, you know, to fight the Cold War. Right. But Minnesota took the challenge really seriously. The commission in 1947 held seven hearings around the basin talking to people, you know, they think we should allow all this stuff to be dumped into the lake. 
thousands of union members showed up and said, no, don't destroy our commons. This is crazy. Many, many people were deeply opposed. They wanted the company to pay for a real tailing storage basin and not just use the lake. Um, and the tribes were deeply opposed. Fishing communities were deeply opposed. But eventually, after tens of thousands of pages of hearing testimony, the state Conservation Commission decided it would be a good idea. And they decided to let what would have been what what became one of the world's biggest mines and biggest processing plants to use the lake as a place to dump its pollution. This was the reserve plant. And starting in 1956, they finished the facility, started dumping all this ground up tailings, 400 million tons of them right into Lake Superior. And fishermen immediately began complaining. They started seeing algal blooms. They started seeing all sorts of gunk in their nets. They stopped catching fish. And basically the company started hiding the evidence that they were causing a lot of harm to the lake. It turned out they were illegally dumping arsenic, mercury, a whole host of other chemicals from, from all sorts of um, materials that were very toxic. And it also turned out the tailings were filled with asbestos, mm. or asbestos form fiber. And so in the 1970s, a group of local women finally got the International Joint Commission and the states to act. Arlene Leto of Vernamise worked with the tribes, worked with scientists, and spent over a decade fighting this pollution, this asbestos pollution that was getting into the drinking water, destroying fisheries, um, and so eventually the, the tailings dump was shut down. The mining company had to build an inland storage facility. And what was so interesting is that this new company wanted to do exactly, almost exactly the same thing that Reserve was doing, mm. allow tailings to wash into watersheds, into um, the Kakagan Sloughs, this enormous wetland. And a lot of pro-mining people kept saying, oh, taconite is harmless. Look, reserve didn't kill anybody. And a lot of tribal members and environmentalists and scientists were saying, wait, reserve was an enormous environmental disaster. Right. It put, you know, billions and billions and billions of pounds of asbestos-formed fibers into our watershed. So a lot of my book looks at both how the tribe, the Bad River Band, ended up being able to stop this new mine project. It did not go forward because of wetlands and water concerns, but also how these different opposing sides um, used the histories of the reserve, used their ideas of history, used their ideas of a mining past as um, in order to debate these current conflicts over who gets to determine what mines go forward. So history is still really, really powerful in the basin for all different communities, but everyone has different memories of what happened 50 years ago. Right. I think you do an excellent job like building that story. Um, and, you know, I, I'm from Wisconsin and I am familiar with some of the, the debates and uh, the argument that, well, we had mining before, why can't we have it again? And I think you do a really good job of using history and using science to kind of show some people's uh, valid concerns. Um, so you, you mentioned the international agreement in the 1970s. Um, and in some ways, uh, these agreements helped 
instill a uh, ecosystem uh, ecosystemic management of the lake, and it seemed like a revolutionary step in the right direction. But you also you demonstrate that it wasn't quite to be. I'm wondering how did a management approach that really was considered a broad ecosystem uh, actually work to inhibit meaningful reform? Yeah, by by the 1970s, there were so many concerns um, in the broader communities about persistent pollutants. We were finding flame retardants in gulls in the lake, finding PCBs, DDT. Rachel Carson was one of the first of many scientists to show that dilution really wasn't the solution to pollution when it was persistent organic synthetic pollutants. Um, She, for example, had found that after the radiation exposure, after the the bomb testing in Bikini Atoll, um, when those records were finally declassified from the military, it turned out that the levels of radiation contamination were highest in the Arctic and in the far north, not where the bombs had actually been tested. And so she made the key connection that if that was happening with radiation, with radiation that didn't break down, Mm -hmm. then it could also be happening with synthetic chemicals. And so Rachel Carson really inspired Arlene Leto and Verna Mize and a host of other people within the Lake Superior Basin and within the Great Lakes as, as a whole to say, hey, we need to really, really pay attention to the fact that our Great Lakes are on the verge of collapse. And even distant, remote, enormous Lake Superior is undergoing rapid changes. So there was a real galvanization. The new environmental protection agency set out to try and figure out how to protect watersheds, how to control pollution, if not stop pollution. And one of the approaches was called the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, starting in essentially in the 1970s. And with that, they set up a set of agreements between US and Canada, the International Joint Commission would basically oversee the, what are called the two parties on the U.S. side, the Environmental Protection Agency, on the Canadian side, Environment Canada. And they would have to basically reduce the, the dirty dozen, the super toxic chemicals such as mercury, DDT, dioxin. And they would have to really clean up the lake. And Lake Superior would be a demonstration zone, show that we could clean up a lake. And it was such heady times. I mean, it sounded like such a great idea. But unfortunately, by the 1970s, the two parties decided that they should have what's called an ecosystem approach, that rather than just focus on one chemical at a time, they would focus on multiple stressors, on deforestation, on development, on water pollution, on lots of different things, the health of the broad ecosystem, and create these lake-wide area management plans and really focus on holistic efforts to clean up the lake. And all this sounds great, right? Mm-hmm. It sounds like we're always yeah. saying people should do. But the problem with that is it became very easily manipulated by these industrial partnerships. Anytime one group wanted to say, hey, we know mercury is killing fish and killing people and killing loons, let's limit it, then the corporations could say, um, but there's so many multiple stressors, we can't possibly focus on just one when there's so many different things going on. We need to do more research for decades and decades. Mm. And you see this happening over and over and over again. 
Canada and the U.S. both decide to focus on voluntary limits, on voluntary agreements. They really wanted to, instead of having clear timelines and regulations, they're afraid industry would get really mad and pull out of these agreements. So instead, they wanted to not do bans, but instead do voluntary partnerships. And it simply didn't work. Dioxin, which we know is one of the most toxic synthetic chemicals ever invented, Mm -hmm. trying to phase it out of the paper industry where it was used in bleaching and getting into the lake. Basically, it didn't happen for decades, even though we had a zero discharge program and the Great Lakes were supposed to be cleaned up. And, you know, you can follow these patterns of year after year after year, the International Joint Commission saying, get this stuff out of the lake. And Canada saying, well, we can't even set a timeline because that might, you know, thwart voluntary agreements. Let's give it another decade or two. Mm -hmm. So both, you know, Canada was just as bad as the U.S. at using this ecosystem approach as a way of avoiding ever annoying an industrial partner. So it essentially completely failed at the zero discharge program that was supposed to be a model for the world of voluntary reduction programs. It found that until we had clear limits and regulations, nothing got removed from the lake. Right. Uh, Once again, the kind of limits of cooperative pragmatism at work. Exactly. Now, throughout the book, and you mentioned this a short while ago, you do a really good job of showing how the local scale of Lake Superior was really interconnected, inseparable from regional, national, global scales to the movement of nature ideas, capital people, commodities, pollution. Um, and that, I think, does a really good job of setting up uh, the way you wrap up the book, which you address the possible futures of Lake Superior in a changing climate. So I'm wondering if by way of a conclusion as we work our way in that direction, would you share some of the lessons you see in this history uh, for what our responses to climate change can be, what they should be? How might we adapt and grow more resilient? Sure. One one of the extraordinary things about Lake Superior, as I said before, is it's the most rapidly changing large lake in the world. I mean, its water is warming at twice the rate of air temperatures, and the air temperatures are already warming at extraordinarily high rates. We're seeing, you know, 70% decline in ice cover, massive changes in snowfall. And this is a basin. I mean, we got 340 inches of snow the first year I lived on the Keweenaw Peninsula up at Michigan Tech. And that was nothing compared to some some years where it's 390 inches. So everyone in the region, it's a pretty conservative region, at least among the whites. Um, um, People in the region may deny climate change, some of them, but they know things are changing and they know that their relationships with forests and clean water and wildlife and each other are core to their identity as Northerners, as people living at the edge of this extraordinary lake. And so, you know, even the most conservative people in the region want to see what they love sustained. And yet there are huge challenges in how we are going to do that. 
And so part of the lessons from history that I try and draw from this book is one, we can learn an enormous amount by partnering with the Anishinaabe. Mm -hmm. And I talk a lot in the book about the stories of different people within the different bands, the efforts that they're making to increase resiliency and adaptation, and also to work at a global and national scale to to do mitigation to stop the emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. So I'm making two arguments. One, that we have to mitigate. We have to deal with climate change by eliminating coal, by phasing out greenhouse gases as quickly as possible. And the tribes are key players in that, just as children are, Mm. just as everyone needs to be to make that happen as quickly as possible. And that's the global scale. But at a local scale as well, doing adaptation, resiliency, trying to adapt to a rapidly changing climate without losing what's core about who we are and the places we love and our relationships to other animals, to watersheds, to home, is also really essential. And the Anishinaabeg are doing an extraordinary range of projects throughout the basin, the climate adaptation menu, they call it. From And they're partnering with all sorts of different groups, partnering tribes, partnering with each other, with universities, with restoration groups, with land conservancies, with government agencies. We're doing things such as restoring wetlands to slow the flow of pollutants into the lake, putting in green infrastructure, planting forests, seeing forests as real partners again in restoring um, adaptive capacity to the lake, restoring beaver, trying to recognize that this core idea of assimilative capacity of natural resiliency is still a powerful idea and we need to work with natural ecosystems. We've had in just the past six years, Three fierce storms on Lake Superior in the summer, what are called thousand-year storms, Mm. but they've happened three times in six years rather than in 6,000 years. Um, One of my colleague's cousins was died in in the flooding last summer in Michigan, you know, in in Houghton, Michigan. I mean, these are really intense storms, Mm. just, you know. 10, 20 inches of rain in a single day. The Bad River Band's um, core town, Odana, was literally cut off. It became an island for weeks when the floods were so intense several years ago that the state highway was blocked and people who needed dialysis, for example, had to be helicoptered out every day to get treatment. Um, And so everybody realizes that we need to stop greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as possible, you know, whether that takes strikes, international action, anything it takes. But we also need to focus as much as we can on not giving up hope and just getting out there and planting trees and restoring wetlands and doing whatever we can at a local level to restore resiliency to these watersheds and ecosystems. So it's really easy to give up hope, but part of the story that I tell is over and over again, even though agencies made mistakes, corporations did some pretty problematic things, that there were always heroes, always individuals who against all odds said, I'm gonna do whatever I can you know, to protect the lake. Charles Stoddard, one of the great scientists mm, yeah. who really stood up against reserve, Louis Williams, Arlene Letta, Verna Mize, Mike Wiggins. There's so many people that even in the face of what looked like insurmountable odds stood up and did whatever they could. And so I think the most important lesson I've learned from this history is hard as it may be, we need to continue to advocate for a vision of sustainability 
where communities, individuals, watersheds, animals are all interconnected. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I, I think I think that's a, a great place to wrap up. So we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I'm wondering, just as my final question, what's been keeping you busy since the book came out about two years ago? Oh, I'm working on a new project right now about climate change and migratory species of the North. Um, mm. It's called the New Mobilities of the Anthropocene. And I am looking at common loons at woodland caribou and coaster brook trout. And so three different migrants, um, one long distance migrant, the common loon, which migrates from the Gulf all the way up to northern Canada, uh, medium distant migrant, the woodland caribou, and a short distant migrant, the coaster brook trout that's endemic, lives just within Lake Superior. And I'm really intrigued by the human relationships that we've had with these three different species. They're really iconic, incredibly important to First Nations, tribal, Cree, Anishinaabe cultures, and also to settler colonials as well. Um, they've really been important to scientific communities and trying to understand migration, what it means to move. And they're really, really changing in response to climate change. So I'm on sabbatical this year. I'm spending one term at University of Oregon and one term up on a Fulbright in Canada. And I just got back from Mongolia where I spent some time working with nomadic reindeer herders. Reindeer and caribou are the same species, but humans have formed very different relationships to them across the north. So. I'm traveling to a lot of different communities, trying to learn how different people are working with these really important other wild animals that we've had relationships with for millennia. And those relationships are changing so quickly with climate change. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project. We'll have to have you back once it's finished. Well, Nancy Langston, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And that's a wrap for this episode of New Books and Environmental History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Josh. 